scripture this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Uh, and for this morning, we'll be reading out of uh, the New American Standard Bible. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, which says, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. It is a joy to be here this morning. In some ways, it feels like home away from home because I know so many of you miss worshiping with you. At the same time, it's really cool to see how many of you I don't know, and I'd love to get to know. So please introduce yourselves afterward. And I I truly am honored and joyed to be able to do what I love to do more than most things, and that is to lead us in the worship of God through the study of his life-giving and errant word. And that is what we are going to be doing, Lord willing, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, as we just read. As a kid who grew up in the 80s, I loved Star Wars like pretty much my entire generation does. I was too young to see the original in the theaters. I was only three when it came out, but I vividly remember seeing The Empire Strikes Back and The Return of the Jedi in the theaters. Of course, I had a bunch of the action figures and a land speeder and an X-Wing and a whole bunch of other stuff that I really wish I still would still had. But, you know, it was just a part of growing up in the 80s. But now that my generation has kids, it seems like Star Wars is bigger than ever. Not only for my generation, but for the next. There are Star Wars toys all over the place again. There's the Clone Wars cartoon and Star Wars Rebel Show and Star Wars 7 and Rogue One and Star Wars Land at Disneyland. I mean, it's just everywhere. It's really now just become a part of our culture that spans the generations. And so if you have any familiarity with Star Wars, you are aware that one of its themes is the concept of destiny such as in Return of the Jedi, Luke is wrestling with having to confront Darth Vader again, whom he now knows he's his father, and and he doesn't want to do it. He says he can't, but the spirit of Obi-Wan Kenobi appears to him and says, you cannot escape your destiny. You must face Darth Vader again. In other words, there's this, this cosmic, impersonal force that is sort of governing everything, so Luke doesn't really have a, have a choice. It's already been decided. He must face Vader again. This is his destiny. Well, this form of destiny has Eastern philosophy and pagan influences, but interestingly, we as believers, we have a destiny too, albeit a very different destiny as we're going to see. Luke's destiny was an uncertain path to meet Vader with no guarantee of what was going to happen, just that he had to do it. Ours is not that. Rather, our destiny is a sure path governed by God that leads to his glory and our greatest joy. It's difficult, but it's wonderful. And so I hope by the end of today, this this can just be helpful and encouraging for us as we get into this together. Since we're just jumping into the middle of this book here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, I just kind of want to spend a few minutes just kind of going over what Paul is referring to here in verse 1 as to why he is in Athens. We actually have quite a bit of the background about why Paul was in Athens from Acts chapter 16 and 17. You don't need to turn there. I'll just kind of summarize it for us. 
Acts 16 tells us Paul's second missionary journey led him to proclaiming the gospel for the first time on the continent of Europe. His missionary team's first stop in Europe was at Philippi, where Paul and Silas were imprisoned and beaten for proclaiming the gospel. After being released, they made their way to Thessalonica, to whom this letter was written to. And from the beginning of Acts chapter 17, we know that they were there for at least a few weeks, proclaiming the gospel, planning this church, starting this newly, uh, newly formed church. But then the Jews, in short order, in that city became jealous. It says they, they formed a mob, which caused a bunch, bunch of chaos in the city, which then precipitated Paul and Silas's fleeing the city by night and going to a neighboring city, Berea, where for a short time they successfully preached the gospel until, believe it or not, the Jews from Thessalonica followed them to Berea, stirred up the crowds there, which then caused Paul to flee that city and go to Athens. So that's what he's referring to in verse 1. He was beaten, imprisoned, chased out of cities until he ended up in Athens, the philosophical capital of the world, where Acts 17 tells us he was preaching in the marketplace every day. But as the true servant he was, he doesn't appear to have been thinking about himself during all of that. He wasn't consumed with himself. He, he wasn't doubting God's call because things were going so terribly. He, he wasn't now asking for help or support from the Thessalonians for everything he did for them. Now it was their turn to repay the favor. His thoughts don't really appear to be on himself at all, which he makes clear in these verses. Amidst all the craziness in his life, he was consumed with worry for the Thessalonian church, so much so that he says he couldn't endure it any longer, as he says in both verses 1 and 5. As verse 5 says, he needed to learn about their faith, so he decided it was best at this critical time to send one of his most faithful associates, Timothy, to go back to Thessalonica and check on the church. He just had to know what was going on with them. So Timothy, whom Paul calls in verse 2, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, went to strengthen and encourage them as to their faith. But the strengthening and encouraging Paul had in mind was specific to one main worry, one main concern. And that is that this church was essentially born into affliction. Of course, they, they watched the founder of, of their church chased out of the city, and then those Jews that went and chased Paul to Berea came back to Thessalonica to release their venom on this newly formed church. This church was literally born into persecution. So the worry that was dominating Paul, as verse 3 says in, in the NASB, that their faith had been disturbed by these afflictions. The word translated disturbed, so that no, no man may, may be disturbed by these afflictions. In the, in the ESV, it's moved. Literally refers to a dog wagging its tail. In other words, he, he was worried that they were vacillating back and forth regarding their faith because of these afflictions. Now, in saying this, it's important to understand Paul does, was not concerned, he was not worried that they were going to lose their faith, uh, that they had lost their faith already. He already covered that back in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 4. He recognized they were beloved by God, that God had chosen them for salvation. And we all know, as Romans 8, 29 and 30 says, the so-called golden chain for whom he, for whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, 
And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So this just clearly details how the entire salvation process is accomplished by God from beginning to end. Not a single person is lost. And these believers were called, justified, and were going to be glorified. The proof of that, Paul said in that first chapter, was their work of faith, their, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. So his worry was not that they were going to lose their salvation. Rather, his worry was that their faith was being shaken by these afflictions resulting in their no longer trusting God and his promises in all things. That's a very real concern for us as believers. Anytime we are confronted with afflictions, which Paul says we are destined for, as we're going to get into, There is a chance of our faith, our belief, our trust in God, His goodness, His plan being disturbed, shaken, are no longer faithfully living in trust. This is a very real concern for us when we are confronted with afflictions of various kinds. Now, as we talk about our response to afflictions, I want to address something important up front. Typically, when we think of affliction, persecution, we we tend to think of things like ISIS, you know, beheading Christians or Paul being beaten in a prison for preaching the gospel. And certainly that is a very real part of affliction. But the word translated affliction and its synonyms, suffering and persecution are not limited to only the physical. The word translated affliction is used throughout Scripture to refer to everything from death, absolutely, but also hatred, betrayal, distress, personal hostility. For example, 1 Peter, written to Christians, suffering affliction and persecution, refers to persecution throughout that book, ranging in everything from verbal abuse to unjust discrimination to outright physical abuse. The point is, all of that is persecution or affliction. So when Scripture refers to affliction, persecution, suffering, it's really referring to a wide range of difficulties that we are going to experience in this life, which takes us back to Paul's worry for the Thessalonians. And this is the point. All affliction, whether it's financial struggles, cancer, people verbally maligning us, or are being uh, beaten to the verge of death for standing firm in the truth, all of it tempts us to cease trusting God and His promises as our faith in Him is shaken. It can cause us to actually doubt God, or as Paul puts it, to have our faith be disturbed. To stick with the theme of the morning, as Darth Vader said, I, I find your lack of faith disturbing. (laughs) <laughs> when life is, is clicking along like we think it should, we, we trust God, we sing His praises, life is great. But when the afflictions hit, that's when our faith is truly tested, and in some cases our faith can be disturbed. And one of the primary ways our faith is disturbed is worry. Now, some of us are perpetual worry rewards. Some of us maybe don't go there too often, but eventually worry gets us all at some point Eventually, something comes along in our lives and we begin to worry. We worry about our safety. We worry about our health. We worry about losing someone or something. 
We worry about our finances, how we're going to provide for our families. We, we worry about our kids. We worry about our country. We worry about being lonely. It goes on and on. The list of things to worry about is never ending. And like I said, sometimes we can be consumed by it to the point where our lives are seemingly governed by, dominated by worry rather than faith. Interestingly, while Paul was in Athens, he too was dominated by worry, so much so that he dispatched Timothy to find out what was going on so he wouldn't have to worry anymore. But there's a a huge difference between the worry I just described and Paul's worry. In other words, we might say there's good worry and there's bad worry. There's righteous worry. There's sinful worry. What's the difference? Well, the difference is what it is that is motivating our worry. Is the motivation us and our circumstances and our fearing our lives aren't going to work out in the way that we think they should? Or is the motivation God and His glory and trusting Him no matter the circumstances? You see, Paul had plenty to sinfully worry about in his life, as we detailed at the beginning. It's not like Paul, after this breezy tour through Europe was now in Athens just soaking up the culture and visiting all the museums and eating in all the great spots and just dawned on him one day, gosh, I wonder how those poor Thessalonians are making out. Paul wasn't enjoying Athens. Acts 17 says he was appalled by the idolatry throughout the city. And so his response was to proclaim the truth of the gospel every chance he got every day in the marketplace, which by the way, was the very thing that led to his persecution almost everywhere he went. And in addition to that, we know at this time he wasn't financially covered. We know he had to work to support himself in Thessalonica. And then after his short stay in Athens, he went to Corinth. And we know he had to work to support himself there. So like I said, there was plenty for Paul to worry about when it came to the circumstances of his life. But that doesn't really appear to have crossed his mind. Because that kind of worry is sinful worry. That kind of worry actually blasphemes the name of God even as we profess right theology with our lips. Because it's saying to God, I know what your word says about you and all your promises. I know you're in charge of everything, that you can't forget, that you're, that you're loving and you care for me and all that sort of stuff. But I, I don't know, it seems like maybe you did forget in this case. Maybe you're too busy. Maybe you're not quite powerful enough. Maybe you don't really care as much as you say you do. Whatever the reason, even though I would never actually say that, practically my life is saying that is actually exactly what I believe about you because in the, in the face of the circumstances of my life, what I am dealing with right now, I'm worried. I'm full of fear and anxiety. I'm doubting I can really trust you. I'm doubting you are really who you say you are. I'm doubting you really do care for me. It's like when my son Bodie was younger, I asked him one night to throw his dirty clothes in the hamper, which in our house means you have to, it was nighttime, you have to walk through a long, dark hallway and you have to go to the back room at the end of that hallway and then you have to go to the back of that back room. And like I said, it was night, all the lights were out. And so he went to the edge of the hallway and he was just, just standing there, just cowering in fear. So I'm watching this and I go, come on, buddy, I'll go with you. And I intentionally didn't turn the lights on. So I start walking down the hallway and... I notice he's, he's still literally just creeping down the hallway. I was like, Bodie, I'm, I'm right here with you. Why are you still scared? Why, why are you worried? I'm here. It, it honestly it kind of bummed me out. It's like he didn't really understand. My being there meant that he didn't need to worry. He didn't need to feel afraid. He didn't need to be scared. Even in the dark stuff, I was with him. 
of course, I'm just a fallen sinner. It's not a sin to doubt me, but to worry and doubt God and his care for us really is nothing short of sin. It's doubting our God is who he says he is, that we can't really trust him. It's screaming to the world, I don't really believe what I profess to believe. But as serious as that is, and if that's going on, we certainly should admit and repent of that. Practically, it doesn't make any sense either. As Christ said in Matthew 6, 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? The answer is implied, no one, none of us. Have, you know, quick poll. Have any of you ever solved what you were worried about through worry? Just your worry magically caused everything just to get better. Hasn't worked for me either. I've tried more times than I'd like to admit. It doesn't work. It, it doesn't make any sense Yet, we still sinfully worry, which instead of helping, in addition to our sinning against God, we hurt ourselves, we lose sleep, maybe we get angry or depressed, we might become reclusive or unpleasant to be around, so now we're alienating those around us who love us, and we potentially increase the chances for acquiring a whole host of diseases that doctors attribute to stress, worry, and anxiety. Makes no sense to sinfully worry, makes us miserable, makes those around us miserable, it doesn't change anything, and it causes us to sin against God. Chances are, though, we all know this. I'm not saying anything anybody doesn't know. I don't think anybody's sitting here going, wow, I never thought of that. Yet we still do it at times. So if my objective this morning were to just stand up here and say, all right, guys, so just stop worrying. What is wrong with you? Just stop it. That's not going to do anything. That's not going to cure anything. Rather, the only cure is to turn to God and his word. And in so doing, we see in Paul, the cure is having the right kind of worry, if you will. We we realize the worry we should have is not worrying about us and our circumstances, but worrying about God and his being glorified in his people. Now, of course, by by saying worry about God and his glory, I'm, you know, a little play on words here. I'm not saying we should, you know, sit around and fret that God's plan is going to be thwarted. When I say Paul was worried for the Thessalonians, not to say that he was full of anxiety, that God's plan wasn't going to work out. Rather, it was that he was concerned for them in a deep way. He loved and cared for them more than himself so that his thoughts were actually comprised with their difficult circumstances and how they were handling them as opposed to being consumed with his own difficult circumstances. His so-called good worry was his concern for God's glory through the gospel and his people, not himself. And how different that is from how we so often face similar circumstances. So we have to ask ourselves in times of trials, where's our focus? Is it on God or our circumstances? Is our faith being strengthened and our joy supernaturally increasing through our difficult circumstances? Or are we like a dog wagging its tail, vacillating between the truth we profess and how we actually live our lives? And one of the ways to help us have the right kind of worry is by knowing what our destiny is. So I am here to tell you, like Luke Skywalker, you cannot escape your destiny either. But your destiny is far different from the destiny of Star Wars. In verse 3, 
Paul, in referring to their afflictions, said, For you yourselves know we have been destined for this. And then he continues in verse 4 and says, For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that you were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, we as believers have been marked for trials. This is our destiny. And what the Spirit says through Paul in verse 4 is so important, and it directly refers to our worry. It says, this shouldn't have come as a surprise to them says the same thing in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. We, should, we shouldn't consider trials and suffering and afflictions strange things that are happening to us. Rather, we should recognize this is part of our destiny. And the fact that we, we don't expect them even though scripture is very clear that we should, I think is so often so much of our problem. Because in our, our wealthy, entertainment-driven, comfort-based, medically, technologically advanced society, we expect things to go pretty smoothly for us for the most part. And so when they don't, we can really be shaken because it doesn't meet our expectations. Maybe that's part of what we're experiencing in this country now, the culture seemingly turning against us, are not having the influence we used to have. That's not new to the rest of the world. It's new to us. Seems like the new normal for us, but that is not new at all. Paul said, Peter said, our Lord said, you should expect this. This is your destiny. So let's pause and and look at this concept of destiny that Paul is using here. Unlike the destiny of Star Wars, this destiny is rooted in God and His Word, and God in his word, is overwhelmingly clear about his sovereign control over everything, which certainly includes our destiny. And to say God is sovereign is to say, as the Westminster Confession puts it, God ordains whatever comes to pass. So maybe the most basic definition of God's sovereignty would be something like, God is in complete control of everything. God is in control of all things. And one of the go-to verses for that is Ephesians 1.11, which says, Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. That verse is pretty all-encompassing. All things, no event in the universe, no matter how minute, falls outside of His complete control according to His good will for His good purposes. And that very much includes our afflictions. As it says in 1 Peter 4.19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So this is so incredibly significant to understand. Our destiny of afflictions are not governed by some impersonal force. This isn't just happening to you. Rather, all things are governed by our omnipotent, infinite, holy God who is love and who in love saved us, even though it's the last thing we deserve, and who will one day glorify us as we will be with Him forever, basking in His glory. And it is this God who loves and cares for us that we can completely trust in every affliction and know 
as Romans 8.28 says, he's causing all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so that overwhelming truth just frees us from sinfully worrying. It frees us from just desiring escape. We aren't promised that. But we are promised that we will be cared for through our afflictions and that we can trust our loving God's perfect care and his using them for his perfect purposes, his glory and our good. Now that we hopefully have a little bit better understanding of biblical destiny, the question now on the table is, okay, well, how do we deal with our destiny? We know God loves us perfectly. We know his plan is perfect. We want to trust him. We say we have faith. We, re- we really just want to trust him. But let's be honest, it's not like anybody really wants to sign up for suffering and affliction. It's not fun, but we know it's guaranteed to come. This is our destiny. So how do we deal with it when it comes? Well, I think there are two primary truths to keep in mind to help us deal with it. The first is we realize God uses afflictions to cause us to treasure Christ more. God uses afflictions to cause us to treasure Christ more. That is a perspective-changing statement. This should cause us to view our afflictions entirely differently because trials are testing us to discover and display who or what we really truly love and desire and hope in and treasure and trust in above all things. So again, we have to ask ourselves in our destined afflictions, whatever they are, even if they're heaped one on top of another, we have to ask ourselves, how is this exposing what I truly love, hope in and trust in? Is it showing I I love, hope, and treasure earthly things, or myself, or is it Christ? Or maybe more likely, oftentimes the case seems like it's, well, it is Christ and. For sure, it's Christ and that job. Christ and my health. Christ and a spouse. Christ and fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. If our afflictions expose that we treasure Christ and then we should thank God that he is so gracious to expose that in us. And as a result, we should be compelled to just run to him, to cling to him, to know that he is our everything, to make much of him to the world as they see what it is that we truly love, which isn't him as long as things are going well and I have all the stuff that makes me happy, but him and him alone. People love to proclaim what they treasure. Just look at someone's social media accounts, won't figure, you know, it doesn't take you too long to figure out they treasure fitness or football or family or their own bodies, which they love to constantly put on display for the world to see. Whatever we value or or cherish, treasure, whatever brings us joy, we want others to know about and the joy that it gives us. As disciples of Christ, that means our all-consuming goal in life should be what Paul's was, to magnify and glorify Christ in everything because that is who we treasure the most. And it is our destined trials that exposes that in us. So that's the first way we deal with our destiny of affliction when it comes Realize God's providing an opportunity for you to stop clinging to and hoping in and trusting in the things of the world or your own ability to navigate this life and instead cling to him, treasure him completely. 
which leads directly to the second way we deal with our destiny. And that is to know that it is God's will that his disciples will be uncertain about how things are going to turn out for us. Now, of course, we know the end of the story. That's guaranteed. But I mean, between the now and the then. Christ made this clear in a very jarring way in a verse. I wonder how many of us have just kind of read through and never really stopped to kind of consider how how those listening to Christ that day might have responded, what, what they might have been thinking. Luke 21, 16, Christ was telling his disciples about the, the things to come. And then he says, but you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And I have to think some of those in the audience that day were saying, okay, yeah, we're all, we're all going to suffer affliction. I got it. But then some of us are going to be put to death. Am I part of that some? Or am I part of the some that gets to live? And the question's unanswered. We're all Christ's disciples with the destiny of affliction, but we don't all have the same story. Just look at the apostles. All the apostles suffered as was their destiny, but it wasn't the same for all of them. James was martyred very early on. Peter was martyred too, but much later. John was persecuted, but never martyred. Or how about Stephen, the the first recorded Christian martyr, but then you have Philip who was boldly proclaiming the gospel about the same time, and history tells us he actually went on to live a pretty long life. But we can be certain that our destiny includes affliction, but we can't be certain what exactly that means for us and when. We really have no idea. But think about what that means. Instead of that, you know, just kind of bounding us up, think about how freeing that actually is. When those in the world who have no hope or are confronted with not knowing when or, or how, They'll die. They typically respond. You hear this all the time at secular funerals. I heard this uh, on a podcast recently, just, you know, kind of talking about somebody who recently died. And, and uh, you know, this guy's response was, man, I just, you know, you got to live life to the fullest. You, you never know when it could be over. Got to get everything you can out of this life. That shouldn't be our response. Certainly our response should not be, you know, sort of cowering in a corner waiting for the sky to fall. Rather, ironically, it's the not knowing the details of of our story or how or when it's going to end that actually frees us to not live for this mist of a life, but for Christ. It's freeing because it allows us to simply trust Christ in everything, and thus live completely and totally for him in everything. Not to trust the path that he's laid out for us with every detail we'd ever want to know. Not to trust our own ability to protect ourselves and to navigate and figure it all out, but to trust him. The only right good response to the difficult circumstances in our lives is to trust our God because nothing is happening outside of his will and we know it's going to be used for his glory, his purposes, our good. He promises us that without giving us the details of our lives so that we trust him. That's what it means to live in faith. That's what this life is all about. So it doesn't get better than this, actually, because rather than getting all the details for our lives, we get more of him. That is what we're promised. 
not the roadmap to our destiny of affliction, but more of him in our affliction, which is far, far greater. Which leads to an eye-opening biblical truth. And that is, there's no such thing as safety. If we're defining safe to mean safe, secure living, free from suffering and affliction. If you think that, I hope you've been disabused of that during our study this morning. That, that's a myth. That, it's our destiny. Now, let me quickly clarify what I, be, what I mean. This definitely can be misunderstood. I'm not saying we are, we are not to be you know, wise stewards, that we shouldn't save or have life insurance or other vehicles that wise stewards might, not, or might employ. I, I am not saying that. Please don't hear me saying that. What I am saying is if we think our, our safety and security is found in our careers, our bank accounts, our retirement accounts, the health of our family, and so on. If, if we're making our decisions around perpetuating those things and trusting those things, then we don't understand what our destiny means. We don't understand what it means to live a life of faith in God who is in control of all those things. Those of you who are familiar with the book of Daniel, you might remember that crazy story with King Belshazzar who was enjoying a feast one evening when God showed up and this hand was floating in the air and wrote a, a curse against him on a wall. And he called in Daniel to interpret the curse and Daniel interpreted it. And then he reminded the king in Daniel 5.23, but the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways, you have not glorified. And he died that night. Safe and secure. The only reason you can take one more breath is because God ordains it. Safety and security as the world defines it and we so often buy into is a myth. We have to recognize our only safety and security is found in God, not because that means we'll be freed from suffering and trials. We won't. That's our destiny. But because in our affliction, we can trust him and know that he is in complete control, not us. And through that, he wants to teach us to live with him as our everything, to obey him, to proclaim him, to love him, not just his gifts. I quoted 1 Peter 4.12 earlier about not being surprised by trials. The verse immediately before verse 11 says, let him who do so, let him who does so by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So in case all this is overwhelming, this is how we live this out. It's done by his strength for his glory as we cling to him. But we also gain something incredibly practical and something that I think we all desperately desire and that is joy, true joy in all things. That's where, that's where all of this is heading. That this is the kind of counterintuitive nature of all of this that we've been talking about this morning. When, when we approach our destiny of affliction in this way, what seems terrible, suffering, affliction, and so on, actually leads us to joy. We find this in 1 Peter 1. I will ask you to turn there, if you would, 1 Peter chapter 1. I think these, these verses just beautifully tie together everything we've been studying this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to, excuse me, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So where's our joy found according to those verses? Our joy is found in our salvation in Christ. Our, our ultimate joy is found in Christ, and it's through our destiny of trials that that is made real in our lives, as verse 7 reminds us. As we experience our destiny of affliction, our hold on the things of this world is lessened, our faith is strengthened, and our joy in Christ and our salvation in Him causes us to rejoice even as we suffer. And then verse 8, it says, even though you haven't seen Him, you love Him and believe in Him. In other words, in other words you treasure and trust Him as we talked about. This is our focus through our afflictions. And then verse 8 concludes, this is where it all leads, that you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. And that's what ties it all together. This destiny is the path to the fullness of true joy that we all desire, but it is only found in Christ as a result of Him, our trust in Him being proven through testing resulting in our treasuring Him above all. So, like Obi-Wan said, better yet, like, like the Spirit through Paul said, you cannot escape your destiny. It's, it's been chosen. It's been chosen by the only true God, our loving, perfect, holy God, who knows that it is through our destiny of affliction that He is glorified more and that we gain true hope, true joy, true contentment, our true treasure, Him. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. If you would like to learn more about King's Cross Church or make a donation, please visit kx.church. Here at King's Cross, we believe that worship means more than just listening to a sermon, and we encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. For Sunday morning meeting time and location for King's Cross Church, please visit kx.church. Thanks again for listening.